Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 60. Uh, we're recording on Thursday, July 3rd. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with the new managing editor of Book Riot, Amanda Nelson. Uh, my usual buddy Jeff is out this week doing I don't know what, but Amanda, we finally get to party together on the show. Woohoo! <laughs> All these times that I've gone on vacation, I've had to listen to you and Jeff having fun. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad we get to do this. Thanks for popping in. No problem. Jeff is probably napping. That's my bet. <laughs> yeah, people who have two kids get so much free time for napping is <laughs> what true. I hear. Is that true? <laughs> oh, to- absolutely. I just ignore mine and put them in the backyard with chainsaws <laughs> and various pieces of like equipment. That sounds like a good method too. Don't don't come back in until mommy's read a hundred pages. Yeah. Oh, I do do that. <laughs> but without the lawn care equipment in real life. <laughs> Folks, you don't need to send us your angry parenting emails, Amanda's <laughs> children are fine. I've seen them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't email me. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, kick off with some follow-up news. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the Kickstarter to bring Reading Rainbow back and to put it in 10,000 classrooms with Reading Rainbow on the web, mobile, Android, and more. Uh, they started with the goal of raising a million dollars. And I think they hit that in like 24 hours. Yeah, 11 hours. 11 hours. Jeez, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, so it, it's run over the last month, this Kickstarter, and they've just kept bumping the goals and bumping the goals. And uh, last week, Seth MacFarlane, who created The Family Guy and I think American Dad uh, and some you know 80s music-filled, ridiculous adult cartoons, um, <laughs> said that for every dollar that was donated over $4 million, he would match up to a million dollars. They really wanted to get this Kickstarter over $5 million. And so we can report now that it closed out uh, just earlier today at... Five million four hundred and eight thousand nine hundred and sixteen dollars. Holla! <laughs> Good job, Internet. Yeah. Good job. We're gonna bring Reading Rainbow into ten thousand classrooms. Uh, they had all kinds of cool stretch goals that they added along the way as that million dollar initial goal got busted. There's not much to say about this beyond, like, really good job, Internet. LeVar Burton for president. Seriously. Uh, you know, we could probably do worse than that. And it's been really cool to see people uh, tweeting about their Reading Rainbow stories, the memories they have of watching Reading Rainbow as kids uh, in support of getting the word out about this Kickstarter. So now that it's wrapped, I think um, I saw him tweet the other day that this is one of, like, the five or ten most successful campaigns in Kickstarter history. Yeah, I saw that. It, it warms the cockles with my cold, dead heart. That's no easy task. It's not. But reading Rainbow will do it. It will. <laughs> and I think we're going to kind of go back and forth in warming the cockles of your heart and also <laughs> giving you things to shake your fist about <laughs> with this week's news. But first, we have a new sponsor this week. Booksliced.com uh, is a website where you can find free and discounted ebooks, and you can also set price alerts um, to 
be alerted, uh, that's how that works, about sales and dropped prices on authors and titles that you're interested in. So you can set a price alert for any book. Um, users can follow their favorite authors to be notified when one of the titles goes on sale. Um, and you can also see all of the free book ebook sales each day, or you can receive them by a daily newsletter if going to the site every morning is you know, not part of your routine. Um, Bookslice also shows historical pricing data for books, and it will recommend whether you buy now or wait to buy the book. Um, so kind of like, I guess, what Kayak does when you're searching for airline flights, it shows you like what's the likelihood that this price will go up should you just buy it now uh, or you know, wait because they're probably going to dip it again. Uh, the service is only for um, books on the Kindle and iBooks platforms. And I would assume that that has something to do with APIs and access to pricing data and how easy it is to stream or not stream that information. But I've been playing around with it. I set up an account and I went and looked for uh, some books that uh, I've been interested in. I looked for Creativity Incorporated, which Jeff has talked about on the show several times and set up an alert. Uh, so it shows you what the current list prices for Amazon or iBooks. And then you put in, like if the current list price is $9.99, it says, alert me when the the price drops below X. So if you're working on an ebook budget, and most of us are working on some kind of book budget, you can decide, I don't want to pay more than X dollars for this title that I'm interested in, then Bookslice will alert you if or when that book goes on sale at or below the price that you've set. Uh, So you could say, uh, man, the Goldfinch is coming out in paperback sometime soon, and hopefully they'll drop the um, the ebook price when that happens. They dropped it to a dollar ninety nine when the hardcover was out for a little while. Maybe that'll happen again. I'll put a dollar ninety nine in. Uh, there are just tons of ways to toggle it. I love this notion of getting uh, notified when a title by one of your favorite authors goes on sale. There there are a lot of options to play with. So if this sounds good to you, if you want to go poke at it and see uh, what you can make the service do for you, go to bookslice dot. Uh, com slash book riot uh, using that slash book riot lets them know that you came from us it supports the show hopefully they'll continue to sponsor and we can keep doing this for you that's another yay internet kind of thing i yeah. think being able to track pricing technology yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's our new tagline show of- title <laughs> technology yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right, more follow-up this week. Uh, last week, we talked about the New York Public Library getting a grant to start loaning out Wi-Fi hotspots. And it looks like Chicago Public Library, uh, Chicago's public library system has received the same grant as well. Uh, they got $400,000 from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation for the library's Internet to Go program. Um, and they were one of 19 winners out of 700 cities that applied for this. Nice. Yeah, pretty cool. Uh, Another, you know, we talked about last week how libraries are uh, having to expand out the types of services that they offer. And so it's cool to see that it's not just books um, and access to information that way, but that now people will be able to check out Wi-Fi hotspots to take home. Yeah, I like how so much of the narrative around library use is like, you know, books are magic, which they are. Um, But it's nice to see a library doing something different, I guess, and getting funding for it. Like in this article about Mm -hmm. it, it says that um, they're talking about like Chicago residents who don't have access to digital services. And uh, when they do have access through the library in targeted neighborhoods, they're 13% more likely to obtain employment Mm. or increase their net net income. And that's, you know, data, woo! (laughs) 
and actual <laughs> so. like tangible changes to people's lives by access to internet and now thanks to library programs. Yeah, libraries, useful. Yes, very good. Okay, Amanda, <laughs> do you want to take this next story? It just broke this morning, and I feel like I want to hear the Amanda Nelson intro to it. Duh, makes sounds. That's my <laughs> intro. Okay, so what seems to be a group of self-published authors have written a petition on change.org um, in kind of addressing the Amazon Hachette situation, um, except it's saying, it's so hard to explain because it reads sort of like a, like a manifesto almost. It's essentially saying that Hachette and quote-unquote New York Publishing are out to destroy authors and readers' lives, whereas Amazon is wrapped in warm fuzzies and exists to benefit authors and to benefit readers and to do great, noble, and important things for books and literature. And the point of the petition is that in this Hachette Amazon situation, but also in your reading life in general, you should support Amazon and not publishers. Yeah. <laughs> but there's no, like, so why do I have to sign a petition about that is a thing I don't understand. Yeah, it's not clear to me what the call to action in this petition is. And I have always thought that a call to action was the point of a petition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm crazy that way. Because it looks like one of the possible calls to action could be, hey, writers, this is a call to you to thank your readers who support you, which that's a you know good enough sentiment for writers to have. But the language really seems to be directed at the action that readers are supposed to take. And you're right. They, they set up New York publishing with the P capitalized in publishing mm-hmm. as if it's like the um, mafia style <laughs> secret organization that rules everything. But it sets up New York publishing in opposition to uh, self-publishing as largely made possible by Amazon. And once again, puts the responsibility for author's success into readers' hands and onto readers' shoulders, which uh, I guess, yes, on the nitty-gritty level, whether readers buy an author's book or don't uh, is the breaking point on an author's success, but you've got to write a good book. It has to be marketed well. There are so many other pieces that um, that ultimately affect that outcome. But this to me is just the flip side of the thing that we've been ranting about repeatedly with relation to the Hachette Amazon dispute, which is that it's not readers' job to solve this problem. Exactly. Your campaigns to support Hachette by just finding any Hachette title you think might be interesting, or heck, even if you're not interested in it, throw some dollars at it because a multi million dollar corporation needs your support. Right. Um, <laughs> this is just as problematic. Um, Readers, if you want writers to continue to be published by Amazon, if you want to support them, buy books from Amazon, down with Hachette. It's just uh, villagers from the other side with their pitchforks. Um, It reminds me a lot of like the the narrative about indie bookstores in Amazon where um, so much of that that irritates me is like just this idea that we're morally obligated to support independent bookstores for reasons, whatever, for reasons, capital R reasons. And this is just the same thing, like you were saying, but it's 
for the other side. So, like, this, according to this petition, we're morally obligated to support mm-hmm. Amazon? Yeah, this uh, is... Like, Scooby-Doo noise. It even <laughs> says... Right, yeah. This is just Scooby-Doo noises left and right. Yeah. Uh, the letter says, it explains why a boycott of Amazon would mean hurting authors, Hachette and otherwise. And it explains how your decisions have granted more authors their independence than we've had at any other time in history. Uh, and then there, there is a lot of text here so and much. <laughs> not much sense making. This was written by um, an author named Ernie Lindsay, and it was signed by a bunch of um, self-published authors. And I came across it on Twitter after Hugh Howey, who is sort of the sitting prophet of self-publishing, maybe self-declared or like by default or... I don't know how he exactly got himself this position as like speaker of all people who have chosen not to have their books published um, by big houses. It's particularly weird because Hugh Howey was self-published, but then his Wool series got picked up by one of the big five. So he sits, he stands to benefit from both Amazon's continued life and success and big New York publishing's <laughs> continued life and success. Um, that part is very confusing to me, and it feels like an emperor has no clothes situation. Um, I was just joking on Twitter that we should have a change.org petition to unseat the profit of self-publishing and replace him with someone who makes more sense. Yeah, like I I don't want to come across as, as like not supportive of self-publishing as a concept. You know, it has so much potential, and Amazon certainly does make it easier to self-publish if that's the route that you want to go. But this this language of Amazon being like the savior of literature is ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> and it, like there's no other you're not going to make a you're not making a case for self-publishing as a legitimate um, place to go find a great book when all of your language around that idea yeah. is is bonkers. Yeah, <laughs> it <laughs> seems to me like this is um you know that guy that you knew in high school who was a jerk but who insisted on telling you what a nice guy he was all the time? Yeah. Or yes. like the guy at the party who's wasted and is like, but I'm really not drunk. Like if you have to declare what you are and how legitimate you are over and over, even if you are legitimate, it undermines your ability to defend that statement. Because if you are legitimate, people recognize legitimacy. And a lot of readers are recognizing the legitimacy of self-publishing as an alternative to going uh, through all the rigmarole of trying to get your books published by a big five house. And there have been undeniable successes coming out of self-publishing. And Hugh Howey is one of them. E.L. James mm-hmm. is one of them. There are right. dozens of of big stories about writers who have published their books themselves and then gotten a million readers and lots of recognition. And I don't know if fame and fortune (laughs) is maybe (laughs) exaggerating what happens to um, any but a very small group of writers. But this just does not seem to be the way to make the case. You know, it was uh, don't boycott Amazon because Amazon saves publishing, but also don't boycott Amazon because that would mean you're not buying Hachette books, some Hachette books, and that hurts Hachette authors. It's uh, this telling readers what to do and where to get their books and that they owe their decisions uh, to go one way or the other to certain authors or to the future of literature. 
just gets me all like <laughs> simultaneously fired up and really like, come on, we're seriously still having this conversation. Um, so, so much of this petition is about how Amazon, you know, saves readers or whatever by keeping prices low, whereas uh, the New York publishing Big Bad Villain keeps them artificially high, whatever that means. But uh, <laughs> it's fine, whatever. But, you know, I've Maybe they're talking just specifically about ebooks, but I've, I was a bookseller for a while, and when I worked in um, an independent bookstore, we did sell some self-published books, and they, I was always really shocked by how expensive they were. You know, they were paperbacks for $18, $19, $20, which is, to me, and you know, then they would say, well, that's the true, quote-unquote, true cost of creating a book, but I don't know many readers who are going to pay $20 for, for a, a paperback, paperback, you know. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction and sort of contradiction within self-publishing. And I do think that this letter and that the self-publishing that Hugh Howie and most of these folks are talking about is digital self-publishing, where the cost to do it is lower and so the prices can be lower. But we need to squash once and for all this notion that Amazon is serving readers and uh, and ultimately serving the future of books by making prices low slash what they really should yeah. be and that what bookstores uh, are doing is keeping them artificially high. Bookstores don't inflate the price of books. Um, an indie bookstore that's not discounting the book in any way because they have margins to meet and overhead to cover. Uh, and they also, by the way, still need to make profit to stay open. Mm-hmm. Um, it sells books for the list price that the publisher sets and puts on the book's jacket. Amazon can discount books because they use them as loss leaders, um, if you're talking about print books. Um, and ebooks as well. They, um, they sell books for lower than they're listed. They sell them for so low that they often don't profit on books at all um, because they get you in the door. And then once you start buying your cheap books there, uh, you think maybe I can buy my diapers for my kid and my the next time that I need a camera or whatever. Yeah. That's That has been Amazon's method from the very beginning. They launched as an online bookstore, but Bezos plays the long game uh, and they use this low price on books as a way to get customers in and then sell them other things that they can make a profit on. So this language about artificially inflated or artificially high book prices really needs to go because it's not accurate. It's not like a, our friends at Word in Brooklyn are getting a, a book with twenty four ninety nine written on the jacket and then selling it for twenty seven ninety nine. That's not how this. Yeah, works. and I feel like these people who have construct or the author and then who constructed this petition and then everyone who signs it knows that. So it's not just mm-hmm. goofy language; it's purposefully misleading. Yes. Which is a little infuriating. <laughs> yeah, and not okay. Like we're we're purposefully misleading you about the way that we explain publishing at the same time that we're furthering our own agenda by telling you to make your purchases through Amazon in order to support us and to somehow support Big Five publishing as well, even though it's our enemy. Um it just I I just don't know. This whole thing is very, this this petition is very confusing. Um, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. If you want to read the whole thing, um, I would love to see a professional editor <laughs> take a swing through it. Maybe one that works uh, for a we'll publisher. Probably, ah. 
<laughs> and we'll probably have some kind of response uh, or, or maybe gifts about it or something on Book Riot. It's worth taking a look at just to see how confused and convoluted this discussion has become. Uh, and if you have thoughts as a, you know, a normal reader who buys books and cares about them but doesn't work in the industry about how this comes across to you, we're definitely interested in that. And you can shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot.com. Let's talk about something more fun related to Amazon now. So um, we talked probably a month or so ago. I don't remember how long this Amazon Hachette thing has been going on about how Stephen Colbert uh, decided to come out swinging against Amazon, particularly because he is a Hachette Mm -hmm. author. Um, (laughs) And he raised both of his middle fingers to them on an episode. But on that same episode, he had author Sherman Alexie on, and he had asked Sherman Alexie to pick a Hachette author to support. And that like we were going to create this Colbert bump in support of this uh, selected author and also, you know, show Amazon about the sales that they could be getting if they were selling these Hachette titles, but instead go through um, Powell's, which is a giant, wonderful uh, independent bookstore in Portland. Sherman Alexie picked California by Eden Lepucky, which is a debut novel. And um, the first printing that was planned for it was just uh, 12,000 copies. She had an editor who didn't have much experience and apparently not much of a marketing budget, which is pretty common for debut fiction. But then Sherman Alexie read a galley of her book alongside galleys of some other debut Hachette authors. And what happened? It got bumped. Bumped like whoa. Bumped like, bumped like whoa. So her initial print one, like you said, was 12,000. But then after she was on, well, not her, but her book was on Colbert, the print run went up to 60,000. Hardcovers. Because of people, people ordering it through Powell's. That's nuts. That's that is that's such a that's a big that's a big bump. <laughs> it's and sixty thousand is probably enough to get you on the New York Times bestseller list for a debut author, which is a that's which is it's a big huge deal. for a debut author. Like uh, it, this is literary fiction, and I've always heard that a mark of like a really strong literary fiction title is to sell a hundred thousand copies, um, which is you know a stark comparison to like a strong seller in say mystery thriller or Dan Brown, where it's like 6 million. Uh, that's a, that's a big difference, but 60,000 is pretty fantastic to sell through your first, I guess this is her second printing. Your publisher has to go back and have more books made because so many people are pre-ordering it through Powell's. And now it's one of the most pre-ordered copies in Hachette's history. And I can't wait to read it, to be honest. And not even, I mean, I hadn't, heard about the book until um colbert mentioned it but then i got a copy and yeah it's it's a dystopia so Ooh. hey, hey right. you know everybody likes a good dystopia these yeah. days and you know i just went on amazon to see because you know a print run from twelve thousand to sixty thousand that's a big increase and i was wondering if it was enough for amazon to do anything about this particular title like they they made jk rowling's new robert Galbraith? I never say that right. They made her new mystery oh, yeah, novel available because of the just outcry and the loss of sales they were getting. But California is still not available. I, I'm on Amazon <laughs> right now and it is currently unavailable. Would you want us to I email think, you when this item becomes available? No, I don't think so. No. I think that's just Amazon raising the middle finger right back at Colbert. Like they, you know, 
Even Lepucky is going to have a success with this book. Um, Powell's is getting 60,000 sales or close to it. I'm sure there are folks ordering it from uh, their other local bookstores or from Barnes & Noble as well. But man, nice for her. This must feel like such a stroke of good luck, you know, and, and not just good luck. You've got to write a book that's good for another author to pay attention to it and to want to use his coveted spotlight on the Colbert Report um, to talk about your book and to tell people, go and buy this one. This is the title that we're going to gather around. But man, good job. Eden Lepucky, yeah. congratulations. I think it's interesting that she's married to um, an employee of Goodreads, which is owned by Amazon. Mm-hmm. That's not really relevant. <laughs> it's just, I don't know funny <laughs> that, that that was just dishy publishing totally, gossip corner totally gossipy thing that happened right there what i just did I, I don't think we really have methodology corner this week so we'll replace that with gossip, gossip corner. corner that's fine with me oh i'm gonna have to <laughs> repent for that one later anyway <laughs> anyway that's the like sign of the flip side of the current news in the amazon hachette uh, dispute is that while authors are telling readers to continue supporting Amazon. We're seeing lots of readers pay attention to this Colbert uh, bump and support Powell's and Eden LePucky and throw their support behind Hachette, or at least this one Hachette title. Uh, And while we're just on that uh, on that note, also, we mentioned last week that there was going to be a debate or discussion or something between a bunch of publishing professionals at the New York Public Library about Amazon and the future of publishing. Um, that happened yesterday on July 1st. And now there are no, when did it happen? Today is July 3rd. Yeah. <laughs> it happened earlier this week on July 1st. Uh, and yesterday on the 2nd, the video uh, hit the internet. Uh, Nate, our friend over at the Digital Reader, has video and you can find elsewhere online, but we'll put a link in the show notes. It's it's more than an hour long, but if you want to watch the video and see for yourself what these uh, people from various parts of publishing have to say about what they're doing and the future of books and how worried to be about Amazon or not, you can do that. Uh, Book Riot contributor Rachel Manwill was there and she asked if a big publisher would ever just completely pull out from Amazon as an F you. Yeah. Uh, we, can, we can do this ourselves. Um, I'm sure she used more eloquent... <laughs> elegant. Ah! I'm sure she used better language than that. I'm all excited and I can't talk this morning. Uh, But, you know, interesting questions there and big things to think about for where books are going uh, might be worth, you know, if even if you don't watch the whole hour might be worth some of your time. And I'd like to hear from anybody out there. If y'all pick up California as a middle finger to Amazon from somewhere else, I want want to hear about it. And I want to hear what you think of the book. Yeah, I really... I'm interested in how um, responses will go, and I guess maybe watching the Goodreads reviews for it will be a a good measure. I wonder if people who bought it through Powell's are going to leave Amazon There are no Amazon reviews right now. But if you're Sherman Alexi, you've got to be really confident that this title that you're recommending is going to be generally received very well, because you just told people to go spend 25 of their dollars on a book, um, namely in support of a cause or a principle. Uh, So I hope that this continues to go well for them. I'm going to skip the next story about the future of reading that we were going to talk about, because the upshot of it is just that e-readers are going the way of iPods and people are starting to read more on tablets and devices that do more than one thing rather than what Alton Brown would call unitaskers. 
So we'll put a link to that in there, but there's really not much meat on the bone of that story. Um, this one, this next one is our good from our good friends at Oyster, who sometimes sponsor the show, but uh, we just like them, and they are doing some interesting things. They just lost, uh, they just launched, excuse me, their Android version of Oyster, which is um, a $9.95 per month ebook subscription service, and so they've been comparing what. Android and iOS users do uh, in their app. There's an interesting uh, blog post and an infographic about it. What do you see? Oh, so much. I was really interested in, down, it's kind of down near the bottom, but how um, iPhone users read faster, like significantly faster. But, mm. um, oh wait, no, slower. I'm totally misinterpreting <laughs> that. They read significantly slower. And... Um, Android users also spend more time reading per session. So Android users read faster and for longer than iPhone users. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. It shows, let's see, is it what, green and black? Yeah. Yeah, Android users spend 20.9 seconds per page. When page is one screen of your phone. Uh, and iPhone users spend 26.6 seconds per page. That's really interesting. And the reading session length in minutes is also really interesting because people talk about like, oh, I wouldn't want to sit down and read a whole book on my phone, even though that's a thing that I've done uh, and I know that Jeff has done. But it shows here um, Android users' average session length is 8.5 minutes and iOS users is 6.5 minutes. So it seems that people are, you know, popping in and out of this app for their reading, maybe on their commute or in between meetings at work or when they just have a couple of minutes to read a few pages or one chapter of something rather than settling down with it. Um, I use Oyster on my iPad, so I do long reading sessions, but I wonder about how um, how that shakes out between iPhone users and tablet users. For yeah, I also wonder about if the speed, because speed is calculated on seconds per page. I wonder if that has anything to do with screen size. Hmm. Like if you just have more words on your screen, you'll be on it longer, you know? Yeah, except the Samsung Galaxy S4 is the preferred, I guess, most popular... Um, phone of Android Oyster users, and it's iPhone 5s for iOS Oyster users, but the iPhone 5 screen is notably smaller so, oh. than the Galaxy S4, so you would think that it would take less time per screen <laughs> on the iOS. I demand it. I demand explanation. I know. This is so interesting. Maybe there is a little methodology corner to be had here. Back up at the top of the infographic, they're looking at what people read and personality traits, um, kind of making guesses about what reading habits tell about the reader. And they say um, Android users are 88 point, uh, 88% more likely to seek books about health, um, and they are 62% more likely to seek spirituality, where iOS users are 33% more likely to seek books about happiness and 47% more likely to seek influence. And I really want to know how they defined some of those terms. Yeah. Happiness? How can you define? iOS like, users are 33% more likely to seek happiness. And the little book that they have as the graphic for that is, is the Happiness Project. Like, yeah. And there are like, you know, sociology and pop psychology about happiness is a subgenre of nonfiction. And so the Happiness Project by Gretchen Rubin is one of those, but I've seen a bunch of other books related to happiness in Oyster. I guess that's they consider that to be different from 
spirituality. I can't read the title. Well, Reflection on the Psalms mm. is the, by, is that C.S. Lewis? Um, yeah. Is the book that they've put as the example uh, for spirituality. So I guess Android users are looking for books like that. Health may be a straightforward, like you're looking for diet and exercise, but this iOS users are 47 more likely, 47% more likely to seek influence. That's got to just be like and business books. I guess like the title that they give as the example is seven habits of highly effective people. Um, but like that's getting stuff done, not necessarily being influential. I don't know. Maybe they think those are I'm, the same thing. <laughs> Cause it I says know. down here, like the, the most popular books on each device for I, the most popular book for iOS readers was how to win friends and influence people. Mm. So they obviously are into, into the, and the most popular one <laughs> but, for Android is the giver. <laughs> but the second most popular on iOS is proof of heaven, which has got to be spirituality, right? Yeah, and brain on fire. All yeah, which is psychology. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, then popular authors um, for Android, it's Hemingway, Tolkien, and Vonnegut. And iOS is Fitzgerald, C.S. Lewis, and Philip K. Dick. Uh, it shows the time of day when people read, um, and you can see what times of day. Like at midnight, it's mostly iOS users. At 4 a.m., it's mostly Android users. At lunchtime, it's almost evenly split, but an edge toward iOS. And then, you know, down through the rest of the day, the top cities uh, where people read. This is really interesting. It feels a little premature to me because the iOS app is almost a year yeah. old and the Android app is like three weeks yeah. old. <laughs> so like the, what, are, what are the sample sizes? How many users um, on the iOS side versus users on the Android side are you getting this data from? It doesn't uh, say. Maybe we are. Yeah, Methodology Corner, like, mini edition. <laughs> I like down at the bottom this thing about um, Android users read 14% more comics and iOS users read 15% more romance. Oh, interesting. Huh. huh. <laughs> I just have questions. I just have so many questions. <laughs> I know. That's, uh, that is really I didn't even know there were comics in Oyster also. There are some like graphic novels. Um, I haven't seen, you know, issue by issue comics there. I would assume that's because of the fact that like Marvel and DC and some of the other comics publishers have their own digital platforms and they work with Comixology. Um, Android users are 17% more likely to enjoy enjoy books adapted into movies. They saw the movie first. But the iOS users are twice as likely to read privately. That's because they're reading means- How to Win Friends and Influence People, and that is embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> and romance, maybe? People are still weirdly embarrassed to admit publicly that they uh, read romance. Maybe they don't want their friends on Oyster to see what they're reading. Anyway, this is maybe worth taking a look at. If you're using Oyster, you can let us know if this lines up with how you read or not. But I think that as much as I love Oyster, I might be in the bad job corner on this project for them. It's it's too soon. There's not enough information. Uh, I want more details. <laughs> I want to get all up in everybody's business. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why not? Should we talk about something sad before we do our next sponsor? Okay. Womp womp. All right. So Publishers Weekly has published an article about how World Book Night in the U.S. is going to be no longer... Sad trombone. It's been three years, um, but they just announced yesterday that they are basically out of funds. They had applied for grants but hadn't gotten any. Um, 
So they're they're closing up shop. And if you don't aren't familiar, World Book Night was an annual event where um, publishers and booksellers and readers got together to give away five hundred thousand or however many um, books for free. Hopefully, to people who weren't necessarily that into reading. So it was a it was a cool thing for literacy that had been going on for the past couple of years, and now it's not going to be going on anymore. It's a little sad. It is really sad. Um, there, you know, have been nice statements by um, Michael Peach, who is the chairman of uh, World Book Night U.S., and he's the CEO of Hachette. Man, Hachette's just all over the place uh, today. And to Carl Lennertz, uh, who is a former publishing executive as well, but who, like, in kind of a really high-profile hire, went to work for World Book Night a few years ago. Um, they're really sad about this. I'm really sad about this. I think most of the book community who's watched the development of World Book Night is just bummed. Um, And it's existed in the UK for a while longer. I don't know exactly when it started, but this idea of, you know, picking a variety of great books and making them accessible to people who don't normally have access to books um, through passionate readers who sign up to be book givers and pick a title that they want to go evangelize for a night. Um, I know many of our Book Riot contributors and many, many of the readers of the site and members of the community have participated. Uh, Jen Northington wrote a piece for us about what it was like the first year to um, hand out copies of The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood uh, to strangers (laughs) and try to talk to them about this book uh, that has so much going on in it and why, you know, it's worth a shot if you're a person uh, who hasn't traditionally been a reader or, you know, had access to, to books in their daily life. It's a really cool thing. I feel like they should kickstart yes, this. Yes, thank you. Okay. I was hoping somebody would come up with that idea. <laughs> it, I really wanted to keep going because, man, around here, um, people were, uh, like in Richmond, I would hear people like don't, like signing up and then donating their books to battered women's shelters or, um, you mm-hmm. know, there's a women's prison um, or, um, like, hospitals, just stuff that really needs to continue to happen. And I do hope to kickstart it because I would, I would give them some dollars. Yeah, there hasn't been, you know, much information released. And for understandable reasons, it seems like they're sticking pretty closely to their PR, you know, pre-agreed statements and press releases. But I wonder how much it costs to administer this each year. Um, They pay their staff plus a bunch of volunteers. Publishers, I believe, were donating the copies of the books, but they had special editions printed up of each title for World Book Night that had like a special World Book Night cover um, and maybe some notes attached to them. So I wonder what they need, what the operating cost for one year of World Book Night is. Um, Kickstarter doesn't let you do an ongoing thing, but you could kickstart it one year at a time or like kickstart the first year and show so much community support and then get more grants. And this also makes me wonder, like, where is this grant money going that World Book Night has been denied? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, it doesn't... What other causes are, are these organizations supporting? It's a real bummer. I think I'll just be so surprised if this is actually the end of it. The book community has been really great about finding new solutions to things. And Kickstarter is one of those. Um, as the industry evolves. So hopefully we won't have to say, you know, so long farewell uh, to World Book it's, Night just yet. I, I, I bet there will be more news. Is it still happening in the UK? Because this is just about World Book Night US. So. Yeah, this is just World Book Night US. Oh, come on, um, US. I, think, I know. I think they operate separately. Um, I don't know where the money comes from in the UK, but they've been doing it much longer. Um, maybe they can have a conference call between the UK team and the US yeah. team and figure out some some possibilities. But I would love to see it continue, and I know uh, a lot of readers really would. 
So that's our sad trombone moment. Let me tell you about our next sponsor, another new sponsor this week, and then we'll have a couple things related to book banning (laughs) before we do uh, the new books. This week's uh, second sponsor is 99designs. Uh, You go to the number 99designs.com slash book riot to check them out. And what it is, is a service that brings together a bunch of um, professional designers to create Whatever you need, uh, whatever kind of graphic stuff you need for your website, for t-shirts, you get professional, high-quality designs. You get a lot of options to choose from, and I'm going to tell you about that uh, in a second. They offer a 100% money-back guarantee, and they can do logo designs, websites, t-shirts. Um, if you want to wrap your car in a you know design logo thing to advertise your business, you can do that. They have more than 310,000 graphic designers. 310,000! <laughs> that is a lot of graphic designers in their community. And the way it works is you go to 99designs.com. You fill out a form telling them what you're looking for. Like, I'm looking for a logo for my new website site about books and here are the things that I'm interested in having it um, convey. You get dozens of designs back because the designers in this community compete for your business. So you get dozens of possibilities. They submit the designs and you give them feedback over the course of a week. Um, So for seven days, you get to go back and forth with these dozens of designers refining what you're looking for. Um, And then after they've all submitted their completed design based on your feedback, you choose the design that you love best. You sign their copyright agreement. The designer gets prize money and you get your gorgeous new design that you can go and put on your website or your car wrap or your business card or your t-shirt or I don't know, any number of other things. Um, This is a very cool solution, I think, um, especially for people who have ideas that they want to execute. If you have a business that you're running, but you you don't have the graphic design skills yourself um, or the money to hire a big fancy firm. Uh, and 99designs is offering, if you go to 99designs.com slash book riot, uh, you get a $99 power pack of services for free today um, through going in from the website. And um, they you know, know that your branding and your logo are the face of your business and whether your primary point of contact with your customers is through um, a brick and mortar physical location or a web location, keeping the look and feel of your brand consistent uh, is important. So their brand identity pack um, gets you a logo, all your identity collateral at one price, um, and you can use 99designs as the go-to place for logo design, but also for websites, book covers, if you're doing a a self-published book, as I said, t-shirts, car wraps, whatever. Uh, So if you have something that you want to design, if you are just thinking of doing a cool t-shirt or something for the summer, uh, 99designs.com slash book riot to get your $99 power pack of services for free. Uh, If you do it, you create something awesome and you're happy with your experience, uh, shoot us an email podcast at bookriot.com and let us know so that we can take a look at it and give you a shout out on a future show. Uh, And thank you to 99designs for sponsoring. We're really glad to have them on board this week. All right. Tell me something good. Tell me about Sherman Alexi. something good. Okay. I promise I will never sing again. Ever again. <laughs> okay. So, and I mean, we did Vanilla Ice last week, so I feel <laughs> like that's a step up. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, um, I'm not going to sing. So the, an Oregon school board had 
banned, absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian, Sherman Alexi's uh, YA book, um, from use in their 10th grade English classes curriculum after the uh, council on the school board found the subject matter to be objectionable. So they banned it. And then that ban was questioned uh, <laughs> questioned by members of the community <laughs> and the teachers who wanted to teach the book. And then it came, came, come to find out that none of the council members had read the book before deciding that the content was objectionable. Man, that is the worst story. Shocker, shocker, shocker. <laughs> um, so they agreed to read it, and all of the council members, except one, decided that there was nothing objectionable in the book after all, and they unbanned it. Right. I love this quote. Found the subject matter not nearly as objectionable as they had been led to believe. By who? Who had led them to believe that, okay, so the, according to the assessment, before they read the book, the book uh, dealt with graphic sexual material and had bad language on nearly every page and would definitely, maybe, definitely be challenged in the future. So that's why they read it. <laughs> because of the graphic sexual, I have read this book, okay? I have too. There's no graphic sexual material. No, the the piece that people usually object to, if they even get the nerve to quote it, um, is a section in, this is a, a teenage main character, um, and he has discovered masturbation, and there's a great quote about how if it were an Olympic sport, he would get a gold medal. <laughs> um, apparently, the notion that teenage boys are aware of masturbation and sometimes do it is too much for parents. Do they think that the teenage, these are 10th graders, so they, do they think mm-hmm. that 10th grade boys are going to read this book and discover that masturbation is a thing as if they don't already know and then go home well, and, also and get an Olympic medal like, in it and what, get Harry Palms? <laughs> there's not like a step-by-step how-to chapter within yeah. this either. It's kind of yeah, like Alexi trusts his readers uh, to know to what he is referring. Uh, so the character talks about it, but it's not explicit. No. There is, you know, some quote unquote bad language in that the character curses a bit. But if you're a 10th grader, like if you have a 10th grade kid in any school, but particularly in like, you know, in a public school with a bunch of other teenagers who have access to the internet and to cable television, mm-hmm. there is nothing in this book that your kids don't already know about. And what's interesting to me, uh, especially mm-hmm. here, is that they, um, the teachers were asking for approval of uh, Lori Hulse Anderson's uh, book, Speak, and also mm-hmm. this uh, Sherman Alexi book. And they approved Speak, but they didn't approve this one, because Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian has maybe one reference to masturbation, but Speak is about rape. Which, I mean... It, this doesn't make any no, sense. No, it doesn't. But, but at least good for them for recognizing how important a book speak yes. is, or at least at least if they didn't recognize that it was important, at least not pulling it from the curriculum. This is just a story that we hear all too often. I feel like almost every time there's a big piece about schools um, considering removing a, a book from the syllabus or a school that's decided to remove a book from the syllabus, it turns out that it's based on the complaint of one or a few parents and that the parent is referring to like, well, I Googled the book and I read that there's a lot of bad language in it. It's not even that the parent sat down and read the book and determined that the content was something that they didn't want their kids 
you know, exactly. exposed to, which even if you do read the book and you determine that you don't want your child exposed to the, to it, the question of taking the book off the syllabus for a whole group of children in a whole school or school district is a, a whole other hairy issue. Um, but at least read the yeah. thing. Um, this happened in my high school in um, the Shawnee Mission School District in suburban Kansas City, uh, like, you know, a long time ago, 15 years ago. Um, we lost a great English teacher after parents protested um, Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> <laughs> claiming that it, that it had premarital sex in well. it. And it made it all the way to the school board before someone on the school board committee said, you know, sir... Have you read Romeo and Juliet yeah. um, to the parent who was protesting? And it turned out that no, he hadn't, but he was aware that it was about teenagers and he was aware that there was sex in it, uh, to which, you know, the English teacher said, well, you know, they get married first yeah. <laughs> before that sex scene, um, which he did not know. And the just the whole process of, you know, having to deal with a complaint that wasn't even based on fact, but that was based on um hearsay that a parent didn't take the time to confirm or disconfirm in the text of a work, um, lost my high school, one of its best English teachers. Um, this is, this is just not okay. People, if you have to challenge a book, at least read the book first. And then if you're, (laughs) if you're going to make it about a book being inappropriate for children, you have to recognize that what you mean when you say that is that the book is inappropriate for my child, which is fine. If you want to, not have your kid read a book, do it to it, like request an alternate assignment. But the gall of saying, you know, that a book is not okay for all these other children that you're not parenting just bugs me. It bugs me. <laughs> I can feel the steam shooting out of your ears from across the city. And, you know, this, this school board, after they read the book, it seems they did, they suddenly became reasonable human beings because after they read it, um, they said it was fine for classroom use as long as the students and parents uh, were offered an alternate assignment if they wanted it. Which totally yeah. reasonable. That is totally, That's totally reasonable. Fine. And then I love the quotes from the, the school board members. I found it fascinating. It's a great book. <laughs> and then one of the guys was like, I can't figure out why it would be banned, even though I thought it was kind of boring. Like, you're <laughs> okay. Like, it's so not sexually explicit that the school board thinks it's boring. It's not. And I I think Jeff and I have gone on the rant before about people referring to any kind of sexual content in any book as pornographic and how those are either people who have never seen porn or who have seen way too much of it. And so they see porn everywhere. But this is just, it feels to me, especially the objections to this book in particular, um, because it is so not graphic, just feel to me like parents resisting reality about teenagers and sexuality. Uh, Anybody in 10th grade knows what happens to your body when you are aroused and what you can do about it. And it irritates (laughs) me on another level because specifically because this is a book by Sherman Alexie, who's a Native American. And, you know, I just read an, I just tweeted an article actually today from the Atlantic about how um, starting with this upcoming fall semester, the majority of public school students in America will not be white Oh, so, wow. yeah, for the first time in history ever. Um, and it's a, it's a narrow majority of students who aren't white, and that's lumping all non-white students into one big group. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that that means that it's more important than ever that books like this from people who are not white are allowed to be read in our public schools. Because yeah, kids need to see themselves, you know, even if, if that means that we have to admit that sometimes 10th grade boys masturbate. 
<laughs> How glad is Jeff that he's not on this show right now? <laughs> I'm a little glad I didn't have to talk to Jeff about this. <laughs> anyway, so that's, right. that's my rant about Since- that. <laughs> Since we're talking about banned books, um, I've seen this story going around for the last few weeks since the announcement was made, but Melville House just did a nice piece about it. Banned Books Week this year, which is in September every year, um, in celebration of banned and challenged books and sort of in, you know, furthering the discussion about uh, challenges against books and great Uh, books from the past that have been challenged. This year, Banned Books Week is going to focus on comics and graphic novels. Awesome. Which are among the most frequently banned and challenged books. Um, Persepolis, uh, there's Mouse, which is a graphic novel about World War II and the Holocaust. Um, Bone, Watchmen has been challenged. Um, It's really interesting. And this is the first time that I can remember that Banned Books Week has done a particular focus on like a genre or format. And it looks like they're working with the comic book legal defense fund this year um, to highlight comics that have been challenged and banned in an effort to raise awareness of censorship of the medium. That's so interesting. Pretty cool. That's interesting. I I also don't remember them focusing on any particular uh, thing. Yeah. Our friend Paul Montgomery was telling me about the comic book legal defense fund recently and the work that they do and sort of how the the profile of the group is on the rise. But I think what I really am walking away from this decision with is that comics and graphic novels are bubbling up into main reader culture in a way that they never have Mm -hmm. before. And it's big enough that libraries and librarians and the ALA is hugely involved in planning uh, Banned Books Week every year and promoting and programming around it that they're going to that they are turning their considerable attention and publicity power to uh to comics and graphic novels but also uh, to the problems with attempting to ban and challenge comics and graphic novels is really interesting um i guess also because like if you imagine the scene that we were just talking about from uh the sherman alexi book you see things in comics and graphic novels that in when you're just reading text you have to see them in your mind but it's possible for a drawing in a comic or graphic novel to be more explicit or i guess to look more pornographic and so they are challenged frequently because of that not just that it's content that's risque but that it's a visual representation of risque content. Whereas if you're reading a scene, what you see in your head is only as quote unquote dirty as your brain makes it. (laughs) But I'm really interested to see how this shakes out. I've said the word interested like 700 times uh, on this episode. Well, it's got a lot of um, like, I'm just going to say it, interesting factors that go along (laughs) with it. Like I'm reading this quote from the executive director of um, the comic book legal defense fund. And he He's trying to explain why they're so frequently challenged. And he says that, for one thing, many people see, you know, still see comic books as a low art form. And then so they therefore associate the, the message and the free speech and the expression of the authors and the artists with a low value, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like you said, that's sort of changing. Like comics are having like a moment, I guess, in pop yeah. culture. Um, and there's also this thing uh, in this Melville House article about manga and how... Um, the CBLDF is putting together with Dark Horse Comics is putting together a like best practices guide for libraries and how to cultivate manga in their collections because like sometimes the the sexual nature of relationships in manga involves people who aren't like of age in our culture and Mm. so there's a lot of tricksy situations I guess surrounding 
um, comic books that leads to their their cha- being challenged and banned. And so it's yeah, there's a lot of moving parts in comics. Yeah. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's going to be a fun one to follow. There's always really great stuff online the week of Band Books Week from from everything as big as the ALA and major libraries down to individual book blogs. And I guess we'll see the comics blogs um, rally around this as well. Um, we'll be That'll be really fun uh, to keep an eye yeah. on. Yeah. Ready to talk about new books this week? Let's do it. One of our collective favorites, um, and collective, I mean, you and me. Ours. Uh, One of our favorites. (laughs) For the year. uh, Came out this week. Uh, It's called How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky by Lydia Netzer. Uh, They have sponsored the show for this title a couple of times now this year, but we're talking about it this week because you and I both really love it. Uh, She writes really great quirky weird. stories so like quirky <laughs> yeah quirky in the subject matter but also quirky in the language i think her voice like i feel like i could pick up a book without lydia netzer's name on the cover and read a chapter and know that it was lydia netzer yeah that's probably true like the the voice and her writing style is so unique and i think it's really fun uh but this is about two astronomers uh one the woman creates black holes in the lab and studies, you know, sort of like dark matter stuff. And the other one, the guy and the couple, um, is looking to study the cosmos in order to prove the existence of mm-hmm. God. Uh, they meet and they start to fall in love. And then they figure out that their mothers were friends with each other from childhood on and had actually been plotting for them to fall in love. Like they were kind of raising like, them raised yeah, up. for each other. Yeah engineered for each other where like they would they raise the kids separately you know so that they wouldn't know each other growing up um, and then it could seem like a magical serendipitous thing when they finally met but it was like they would read them both the same obscure poem at bedtime or sing the same obscure song or tell them the same story and so then when they met and they started doing that thing that you do when you meet someone that you like and think you might be falling for where you tell them all about yourself they had all these things in common. Uh, and so it's about you know, sort of fate and love and can you be soulmates with someone by design, mm-hmm. by someone else's design, but it's also about science and space. Yeah. Oh, and there's a, there's a kind of naughty scene in a particle collider. Oh, right. That was my, that was my favorite bit. <laughs> Not just because, hey, oh, but also because it's in a particle collider like Lydia Netzer's brain is just such a fascinating place (laughs) it really is her first book shine 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 is about uh, a couple where the woman is uh, left on earth raising their children while her husband who is a sort of science and math savant and builds robots is on his way into space um, on a mission to take all these robots into space (laughs) robots space (laughs) it's the most interesting marriage of literary fiction and science fiction concepts that I think I've ever Yeah, and also across. kind of romance Yeah, That yeah, book, Shine, 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 was the book I hand-sold more than any other book when I was a bookseller. So, mm. hey Lydia Netzer. She's awesome. Yeah, we love Lydia Netzer. How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky is fantastic. It came out this week. Uh, the other big new title that I want to talk about is The Skeleton Crew by Deborah Halber. This is um, narrative nonfiction that is just so far up my alley. I don't know if anything could be more up my alley. <laughs> it's just Rebecca's <laughs> it's alley. A, like, that's where it's at. It is. This is. If you're on my alley, too, you might mm. like it. Um, it's about... Amateur sleuths who used the internet to crack a bunch of cold case murders. 
Um, and how, you know, in the mid to late 90s and then in the early 2000s, as more and more information from, uh, from court cases and from criminal investigations became available online, and then as people who were interested in solving these cases um, were able to join, you know, in message boards and online communities with people who had, like, missing loved ones uh, that they hadn't seen in years and were trying to track down or were trying to solve those people's murders, they all came together by the power of the Internet. Um, and solved all these cold cases that professional investigators and police departments had not been able to solve or had just closed the case, um, either with the wrong solution uh, that they were standing behind because they either didn't know any better or uh, believed was the right solution or closed the case because they didn't think they were ever going to get to an answer and it was a cold case. It's so interesting. Um, Halbert tracks down a bunch of these amateur sleuths. She goes into like the politics of feuding factions <laughs> of case crackers on the internet because I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but people who are passionate about things form different groups on the internet and get mad at each other. That is amazing that there are feuding <laughs> groups of sleuths. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Right? It's so, it's just so I'm so happy there's a book about that. It's great. And she's like, you know, like there was this initial web group that had this person running it and these were the rules of it. And this was how this person, you know, was sort of the maverick of that group. And then she got kicked out. So she started her own web group and other cold case crackers went over there. But there, there's a woman in particular that she profiles who has helped solve like I want to say more than a dozen cases. Wow. Like she has a reputation of being able to look at these cases. There's just an amateur person um, with a, like a normal day job and some dogs running mm -hmm. around in her yard, you know, not, like no serious training. But she's able to take the information that um, police departments have gathered in their investigation, figure out the right questions to ask which dark abandoned corners of the internet to go searching in for more information and then put together the solution. And it's like police departments go to her now uh, to get this done. It's so great. I also think that she should maybe have a TV series made about oh, her. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the book is called The Skeleton Crew. Clearly, I thought it was incredible. <laughs> um, it's just out this week. And there's some big paperback releases this week as well. Uh, Night Film by Marisha Pessel, which was one of the big, big books of 2013. Um, I think I'm already on the record, so I'll just say it. It was not my favorite thing, uh, but it's sort of a horror thriller story that mixes in a bunch of multimedia elements. There are like pages from newspaper articles and from slideshows and, uh, and like movie scripts and stuff woven into the text of the book. So it does make it a really interesting book to read, especially in print. It just didn't quite jive with me, but a lot, a lot of people loved it. It's out in paperback. And if it sounds like it might be up your alley, that's worth a look. Uh, so those are the new books that are out this week. It's How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky by Lydia Netzer, The Skeleton Crew by Deborah Halber, and then Night Film by Marisha Pessel is out in paperback. And I think that's our show. Yeah. Thanks for joining me, Amanda. Um, if you have been a regular listener of the show, Amanda's going to be on every third week taking either uh, mine or Jeff's spot so that you can get to know her better because she is running the day-to-days at Book Riot. Uh, as always, you can shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot.com with thoughts, questions, concerns, feedback, book recommendations. If you get a logo design at 99designs.com, let us know. Uh, we do want to thank 99designs and Book Sliced for sponsoring the show. You can go to 
facebooksliced.com slash bookriot uh, for their deal and 99designs.com slash bookriot to get the $99 uh, pack of services for free. Uh, if you like the show, if you want to leave us an iTunes review, we will be very, very grateful. That helps other folks to find us and discover us on iTunes. A rating or a review would be great. You can find uh, Book Riot on Twitter, Facebook, uh, of course, on the web every day, bookriot.com, uh, with new stories from our awesome stable of contributors, now edited by Amanda. I'm on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y, and you can find Amanda at I'm Amanda Nelson. It's easy to remember. Yeah, show notes. <laughs> show notes will be at bookriot.com slash podcast, and we'll see you next week. Bye.